So glad to get to preach that good news again to us this morning. A day in late August, 386, is one of the most important days in church history. Augustine was almost 32 years old. He had given away his passions in this way of sexual desire for nearly two decades. He'd left home at age 16, but his mother Monica had never ceased to pray for him. With his best friend Alpius, he was talking about the remarkable sacrifice and holiness of a man named Antony, who was an Egyptian monk. Augustine was stung by his own bondage to lust when others were free and holy and able to live for Christ. Augustine wrote, There was a small garden attached to the house where we lodged. I now found myself driven by the tumult in my breast to take refuge in this garden, where no one could interrupt the fierce struggle in which I was, was now my, my own, which, in which I was my own contestant. I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting God's will and entering into God's covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and I hugged my knees. This is Augustine in deep distress. But he began to see more clearly that the gain of Christ was far greater than the loss of sin. And by a miracle of grace, he began to see the beauty, beauty of holiness in the presence of Christ. The battle came down to the beauty of purity and fellowship with Christ versus what he called the trifles that plucked at his flesh. And he wrote the following, I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to tears which now streamed from my eyes. All at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain, take it and read, take it and read. So I hurried back to the place where Alpius was sitting, seized the book of Paul's epistles and opened it. And in silence, I read the first passage on which my eyes fell. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. Rather, arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. Romans 13, 13 and 14. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant... As I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. Augustine was born again. He never turned back to his old ways. The wind blew in a garden. It blew with a child's voice. It blew through a word of scripture and the darkness of his heart was dispelled. 1 Peter 1.23 since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For the all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it was that word, that couple of verses, 
from Romans chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit used to pierce Augustine's heart and to regenerate him. As we sang this morning and has been the refrain of this entire series this Christmas season, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And in the past two weeks, we've seen the definition of that new birth that Pastor Keith Maddy helped us see from John 3. And as Pastor Thad taught last week on the need for the new birth from Titus chapter 3. So this morning, we're going to come to the source of the new birth in 1 Peter 1. How is it that knowing what the new birth is and knowing our need for the new birth, how does God actually bring it about? What does he actually do in our hearts to regenerate us, to make us new in spiritual life? Well, the answer is given in at least three ways in 1 Peter chapter 1, and those three ways are going to form the substance of my outline and what we're going to discuss these next few minutes together. So the first way in which God brings about the new birth is mentioned in verse 3, where it says that God causes us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see that in verse 3? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A second way he points to it is in verse 18. Notice where Peter writes, knowing that you were ransomed, he uses a different word, he doesn't say born again here, but it's the same idea. It's being brought to God out of bondage, out of death. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we get the resurrection is a way in which God brings about the new birth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ is another way. And thirdly, look at verse 23. We've read it now twice. This is a third time. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. So we get three ways in which God brings about the new birth. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 3. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, verse 18. And through the living and abiding word of God, verse 23. But what I want to show you this morning is those aren't really, even those things are distinct, they're all captured in what Peter says in verse, at the end of verse 25 is the good news that was preached to you. Because the good news includes what God has revealed in his word concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's the gospel message that God brings new life to us. So here's my thesis this morning. If you could sum up the sermon in a sentence, here it is. Christians are born again through an imperishable blood by an imperishable seed for an imperishable hope. That's what Peter's teaching in 1 Peter 1. That Christians are born again through an imperishable blood, by an imperishable seed, for an imperishable hope. So let's talk about each one of those one at a time. First of all, imperishable blood. Verse 18 again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the blood of Christ, his death on the cross, is the ransom price 
paid for our life, and this blood is contrasted with less valuable things like silver and gold, (laughs) which we think are the most valuable things, right? But the most valuable thing is the blood of Christ. We couldn't be ransomed. We couldn't be purchased. We couldn't be bought out of this slave market of sin and death by money. God could come up with all the money in the world and not purchase us out of that. But no, the death of Christ, the blood of Christ, was the ransom price of our redemption. And the reason that Peter gives that silver and gold don't work is not just because that's not the way salvation is transacted, but because silver and gold are perishable. (laughs) The blood of Christ is not perishable. So let's consider how the Lord causes us to be born again through imperishable blood. First of all, it's through the death of Jesus. As a basis for God to unite us to Christ and to create faith in us and give us new spiritual life, there has to be some objective historical things happen in order for us to be born again. And the first major historical thing that needs to happen is Christmas. The Son of God has to be born into the world. And Christmas is born, or or the Son of God is born, Christmas happens so that the death of Jesus might happen. In fact, this is what Jesus himself said about Christmas. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the baby, with baby thoughts, knew that. This is why the historical event of the incarnation happened. This is why Christmas happened. The Son of God experienced his first birth so that we could experience our second birth. As I've said many times and said it quite frequently throughout our series in Revelation, if we're born once, we die twice. If we're born twice, we die once. What do I mean by that? If we're born once, that is a physical birth alone, but not a spiritual birth, we not only die physically, we die spiritually in hell forever. But if we're born twice, that is we're born physically and we're born spiritually, we only have to experience a physical death. But spiritually, we're alive forevermore. So the Son of God came to give his life as a ransom for many. This had to happen as the basis of any new birth. Our new birth was purchased by him. On the cross, Jesus paid our ransom, died in our place, so that we'll never go back into the captivity to our old life and the consequences that it held for us. That's what the new birth accomplishes, is getting us out of that old way of living and the consequences that were held, by, held for it. The blood of Christ is, a, is of infinite value. It never runs out. It is imperishable, and that is how we're ransomed. That's the price of the new life that we receive in the new birth. And Jesus gave up his life to purchase it for us. So in regard to the new birth, eternal life, new life, is not possible for enslaved sinners without a ransom being paid. And so we were all in bondage to ways of thinking and feeling and acting that would have destroyed us. Pastor Thad talked about that a little bit last week. Peter calls them our former ways, our futile ways of living. And it was slavery and bondage to those ways and that sin that would destroy us if we could not be ransomed out of that slavery. 
And so God paid this ransom price by sending his own son to bear in his body on the cross his own wrath and judgment against that so that we might be set free. Now that was the death of Jesus, but a second way is through the resurrection of Jesus. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, or sorry, verse 3, we are brought to this place of being born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, not only is it through the death of Jesus, but it's also through the resurrection that the new birth happens. Because think about it. If Jesus doesn't come back from the dead, we ain't either. Doesn't matter what kind of ransom he paid. If his death doesn't bring newness of life, then our death in him will not bring newness of life for us. So the, third, the, the, the way that God brings this about is not just through the blood of Christ, but also through the resurrection of Christ. So the new birth is something that happens in us when the Holy Spirit takes our dead hearts and unites us by faith to the living and resurrected Jesus so that his life becomes our life. We become united to him. So it makes sense that Jesus must be raised from the dead if we're to have new life. New birth happens, you remember, in union with the incarnate Son of God, not simply the spiritual Son of God. The new life we get in the new birth is the life of the historical Jesus, the God-man. Therefore, if He does not rise from the dead, we don't have any hope of newness of life either. So that, I just hope, I hope you can appreciate more, even this morning, thinking about, okay, I know that the Holy Spirit came into my life and caused me to be born again, but I want you to see that the Holy Spirit couldn't even do that if Jesus didn't do something historically. If he didn't die and rise again, the Holy Spirit bringing that news home to you would make no difference in your life spiritually, right? It's because Christ died and because Christ rose and because contained in, that, in that, those events are the power of God to salvation that when that message gets communicated and the Holy Spirit owns it, that it actually accomplishes spiritual life in us. That's the only way it can happen is if there's an imperishable blood that happened, which was Jesus Christ. His blood was imperishable because the very blood that coursed through his veins on earth, now in a real glorified sense, courses through his veins in heaven. And it will never, ever be extinguished. And so because his life can never be extinguished again, those who are united to him, their lives can never be extinguished again either. So that's the first one, imperishable blood. Second, imperishable seed. Notice this same emphasis on this imperishable idea in verse 23, where here Peter says it's not through imperishable blood that we're ransomed, but it's through the imperishable word or seed that we are brought to being born again. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. So the point is the same as the, with the resurrection in verse 3 and with the ransom in verse 18. The seed, that is the word of God, that comes to us is imperishable, and therefore the life that it generates and sustains in us is imperishable. So the seed of God comes through the Word of God, and as it's planted in our lives, because that seed, that Word, is imperishable, so our lives are imperishable as well. So two questions. What is this seed that's equated to the living and abiding Word of God, and how does God do it? How does, how does new birth come through that? First of all, the good news that was preached. 
Notice Peter defines what he means by the living and abiding word of God by not just quoting Isaiah 40, but by saying in verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what is the good news that was preached? Well, I think we can see, as we've already seen, at least this much, it consists in the death of Jesus for us, the resurrection of Jesus for us. And in fact, we see this very summary of the good news in verses 10 through 12 described in this way. So look back in the chapter. We didn't read these verses yet. But in verses 10 through 12, we get this. Notice how the good news is summarized. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, this would have been the Old Testament prophets, to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, in them was indicating when he predicted that it... So the Spirit of Christ, through the Old Testament prophets, are predicting something. And the prophets know this, and therefore they're announcing it a lot. That's why we see these predictions in the Old Testament about this suffering servant, or this ruler to come, or this son of David, or this child of Abraham, or this, these images of the coming Messiah. But notice... They said they were predicting, verse 11, the sufferings of Christ, there's the death, and the subsequent glories, there's the resurrection. Okay? Verse 12, it was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what's the good news? It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the fact that Jesus has come, Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, Jesus has rise, rose again. So the good news is what Jesus achieved for us by his death and resurrection. Peter talks about this in a couple of different ways. Look at chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24 talks about Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. There's the death of Jesus. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's the new birth. Right? By his wounds you've been healed. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we get another summary. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. So there again is a reference to Christ's death securing his Return from the death, from death, and by our being in union with him by faith, our resurrection from the dead. So that was the good news that was preached, but also look, secondly, at the good news that was received. Look at how Peter describes how we receive this good news. First of all, look at verse 12. Those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven... So, it's not just the preaching of the good news, which I'm trying to do this morning, which creates new birth. It has to be accompanied by someone. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I can preach to your heart. But if you're outside of Christ, unless the Holy Spirit preaches what I'm preaching to your heart, you will remain in spiritual death. My words have no power. To accomplish anything. It's God owning God's word that creates spiritual life. 
We see this again in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Look there again. Peter says about Christ, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, notice verse 21, who through Him are believers in God. You know how you're a believer in God, believer? Through Him. Not through me. Not through any of our other pastors. Not through the person who shared the gospel with you. Through Him, you're a believer in God. Through Christ Himself, you're a believer in God. By the Holy Spirit, you're a believer in God. In fact, verse 21 is identifying God the Father. Previously, in verse verse 12, we see the Holy Spirit being the one who is bringing about the powerful preaching of the good news. Here we see the Father is doing it because it says in verse 21, who raised him, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So who's the him that Jesus gave glory to by being raised from the Father? So that your faith and hope are in God. But notice also in verse 3 again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy He has caused us to be born again. What? Okay, so which is it? You're confusing me, Pastor Mark. Holy Spirit, you said, caused us to be born again through the preaching of the good news in verse 12. God the Father, you said, caused us to be uh, born again through verses 20 and 21. The Son of God, you said, caused us to be born again in verses 3 and 4. Which is it? All three members of the Trinity are involved in your being born again. They're all personally invested, and they're all actively engaged in your new birth. So God, so how, do we, how does this connect up? Okay, we got historical events through an imperishable blood. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection outside of us in history. There's this message that it contains. It's called the good news, the gospel that's preached. And if that gospel, if that message about Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, that good news is going to be preached, if it's going to be believed by us... It has to be enabled by the triune God for us to believe it. The Holy Spirit's behind it. The Son of God's behind it. The Father's behind it. And it's God who enables us to believe it. Now, I want you to notice, this is the way the good news is received. It's believed. Believing is receiving. That's what it means to receive the good news. It means we believe the good news. But why do you believe the good news? Because the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, and God the Father enabled you to believe it. Now, what do you do in response to their enablement? Does this mean you don't do anything? No, they enable something in you. And here's what they enabled. Notice verse 21 again. So that your faith and your hope are in God. That's what they enable. They enable faith in themselves. They enable trust. Jesus causes us to be born again in order to trust Him. God the Father enables us to be born again to trust Him. The Holy Spirit enables us to be born again to trust Him. See, it's about bringing our faith and our hope into God. So the response to the good news that's preached to us by the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus, according to the mercy of God is to place our faith and hope in God, and that's the evidence that the good news is received. Peter calls this setting of our our faith and hope in God obedience to the truth. Verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That's what obedience to the truth is. Obedience to the truth means receive the gospel, believe in Jesus, and through that our souls are purified or 
we're born again. We're made alive. We're made new. So the effect of all this is that our souls are purified and that we're made fit for heaven. So the point of all this is that God works through his word, and it's through his word, the good news that's preached, that's the instrument of the new birth. And the way he does that is by his word creating faith and hope in himself. So we hear the word, and we receive the word, because it sounds like good news to us. Right? That's the way the Holy Spirit has worked. So here's the thing. You know the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and life if the good news is good news to you. If the good news is ho-hum news, boring news, heard it, move on to something else, I'm sorry. We're praying for you. That is spiritual death. Yawning at Christmas. Yawning at Christmas. The glorious incarnation of Jesus. Blah, 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 blah. That's a spiritual death, brothers and sisters. It's a spiritual death, and we can't do anything about it. But preach the good news and pray like crazy. And ask the Holy Spirit to own it. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's the, that's the simple explanation. So if our part in the new birth is believing, and if the word causes believing, then behind the word and behind our believing is the decisive hand of God. And this is what James says in James 1.18. Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. So he brought us forth by the word of truth, but it was because of his will, not our will, his will. James didn't say because of your will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. No, of his will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. God was the decisive actor here, not us. So, that's how this imperishable blood gets connected to us, through an imperishable seed, through this good news that's preached to us. Now, we've talked about the historical events, Christ's death and resurrection. We've talked about how the good news is received. And now, let's look at what this results in. Okay? So when we're born again, what is it for? To what end are we born again? Well, we are given that answer in verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. There it is. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's why we're born again. We're born again so that we can be adopted into God's family and become an inheritor of everything that God owns. He has an inheritance. And so He gets us into His family. He causes us to be born into His family so that we can get His inheritance. I don't know about you, but I want that inheritance. Not for the inheritance alone, because the inheritance is God, right? He's the, he's, the, he's the chief inheritance. But by the new birth, God means for us not to just have new life, but eternal life. Our new life in the new birth is forever. Just as the, imperishable, the blood is imperishable, the word is imperishable, the hope is imperishable. 
Jesus isn't going anywhere. The Word isn't going anywhere. All flesh is like grass. All its glory like the flower. The grass with the Word of the Lord remains forever. We ain't going anywhere either. Praise the Lord for the good news of the Gospel. Because Christ isn't going anywhere. The Word isn't going anywhere. You aren't going anywhere. Except where the Word and Him go. If He's imperishable and that's imperishable, you're imperishable. Because you're in union with Him. And He brought you forth through that very word. So by the new birth, this means that we'll never die because in the new birth, we're joined with the one who is never, never will die again, Jesus Christ, who's been raised from the dead. And because he passed out of death into life, so will we. And Bradley knows it this morning. So our hope later is first, and then we're going to talk about our hope now. This, this, this inheritance that Peter tells us about, this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's kept in heaven for us, part of that waits for the future, and part of that is given to us now. There is a meaningful reception of that inheritance that God gives us right now, and there's a huge amount of it that waits for when we go to be with him. But let's talk about both of them. First of all, our hope later. Notice he says in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So right now, we're being guarded. We're being kept for that inheritance. It's going to be revealed in the last time, though, when he comes back. So our part, so part of our hope later is resting right now in the confident assurance that by God's power, we are being kept for that inheritance, and God will not fail to keep us for it. The inheritance is kept for us, and we're kept for the inheritance. Isn't that good news? That, could, that should really cause us to be happy. Why? Because of what verse 6 says. In this you rejoice. What do you, what do you rejoice in? You rejoice that the inheritance is being kept for you and you're being kept for inheritance. Why? Because now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, he's saying, just because you got this future hope doesn't mean you're not going to suffer like crazy right now. You think being born again exempts you from a life of hardship? Being born the first time didn't ex exempt Jesus from a life of hardship. And being born again doesn't ex exempt us from a life of hardship. In fact, just as Christ faced suffering first and then glory, death then resurrection so too do we in him experience the same. We too will pass through various trials as God deems them necessary, and they will cause us grief and pain, but we remember that God has a purpose behind them, that is to test the genuineness of our faith, and that they will only last for a little while, even if that little while is 50 years. In comparison to an eternal inheritance, that's a small amount of time. And notice, just as the blood of Christ is imperishable and the word of God is imperishable and our resurrection hope is imperishable, your faith is imperishable. And so as we meet these trials, we don't have to worry if our faith is going to die. It won't. If you've set your hope in God, which is what the essence of faith is, then the same resurrection power that brought Jesus Christ back from the dead, the same imperishable blood, the same imperishable word, if your faith is in an imperishable word, your faith is imperishable. Because it's not the quality of your faith that's the issue. It's the object. 
It's what your faith in. If your faith is rooted in eternal promises and rooted in the abiding and living word of God, then your faith is imperishable because it's rooted there. It's not your faith that is of the essence of imperishability. It's what your faith is in that is of the essence of imperishability. And notice how we respond to all this now. Verse 8, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, hoping in God means that we love him, we believe him, we rejoice in him, knowing that we will certainly obtain salvation, full and final salvation. The outcome of our faith, the reason we believe, must be salvation of soul. We can't, we can't be believing in God for something else. What are you believing in God for? An easier life now? A better quality marriage? A good family? Because it's the Christian thing to do? No, you have to be believing in God for ultimately Him forever in salvation. That's the deal. That's the contract he set up salvation for. It must be in God and God alone. If our faith's in anything else, the fires of testing and the pain of trials will reveal it. And this is why Peter tells us in verse 13 that we must set our hope completely on Jesus. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that is to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put it there, and it will never be shaken. Put it here, and it will. But put it there, and ain't nobody touching that. So that's our hope later. But how does that impact us now? Well, we've seen a couple of ways. It leads us to rest and rejoice, right? Knowing confidence, this is going to happen. I'm going to get there. I have assurance. Not because I'm so strong, but because God is so strong. His word is so strong. Christ is so strong. His blood is so strong. His resurrection is so strong. But how should that impact us now? Well, Peter tells us, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So notice, he says, how do we live now? We strive to walk with him in holiness. We strive to put to death the passions of our old way of life and walk in newness of life. We strive to live out our new birth, right? We strive to actualize it in the present. We've been born again. For a new life, we walk in newness of life. That's what Peter is calling us to do. Live out what you will be forever. You're going to be holy forever. Start now. You're not going to be conformed to the passions of your unbelief in heaven. So let them go. They're not even who you are anymore. So you be new. You're new. And so be what you are. And so he tells them in chapter 2, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And then he says in verse 22 of chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. So the goal is not just to stop doing certain things. It's to put on righteousness and put on the new birth life, the sincere life that's marked by earnest love for the church, for the lost, and for God himself. 
So we love one another best as we live in this reality of the new birth and the future inheritance that we will have. So how do we do that? How do we grow in holiness? Well, Peter tells us again, verse 3 of chapter 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in salvation if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. He says, this word that brought you to life, live on it for your life. It brought you new birth. It will help you live a new birth life. It brought you out of spiritual death. It will continue to help you in spiritual life. If it, the word was that powerful to raise you from spiritual death, don't you think it can make you more holy than you are right now? Yes, it's that powerful. I know some of us think we can kind of tend to doubt the power of the word because we think, Pastor, I've been struggling with the same sin since I was born again. Now, there's some stuff that I struggle, but it's still there. Listen. It is no mark of the power of the word that the word works slowly. It doesn't have to work fast to be powerful. It can work slow and be powerful. But live in it. Desire it like a crying newborn desires it. See, that's our temptation as we go along. We get too adult in the faith. We quit being kids. Stop being adults in the faith. Now, in your thinking... Be adults, but in your faith be childlike. Never grow out of being a child of God that is dependent, is as in need of the word of God as the day you were born again. I need it more now than I ever have, and so do you. And that's why he says, like newborn babies, long for the, long for the milk of the word. Long for it. And the way you long for it is you drink a lot of it. The more you're in the Word, the more you desire the Word. Babies desire milk the more they drink milk. And so, he says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, and we have, desire that every day the way babies desire milk. Feel the the need for God's Word every day the way babies must have milk to grow into life, else they die. Peter's saying, if you're going to go on in the Christian life, if you're going to be holy, if you're going to actualize and live out this new birth reality, then you must have milk. If you're going to be free from malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, you must hunger and thirst for the Word of God the way babies hunger and thirst for milk. And if we do that, if we truly taste and see how good God is, then we'll drink deeply from it and we'll be changed over time. Maybe not all of our new births were like Augustine's. Some of us have those testimonies. We can remember where we were the moment it happened. The verse we were reading, the verse that was shared with us in our lives where we could tell in that moment, something's happening, something's happening, something has happened. But it doesn't have to happen that way. In fact, I want to conclude with this illustration from the life of C.S. Lewis. His new birth happened almost imperceptibly. And so kids... I want you to listen to this too because chances are if you come to Christ at a young age shouldn't say chances are if providence permits and you come to Christ at a young age you probably won't have the Augustine-like conversion 
Like you won't be sitting outside and somebody's reading a, saying something and it drives you to the Bible and you open it up and turn to the first verse you read and it converts you. Okay, he had spent 20 years in sin. And that's one of the reasons the word hit home as powerfully as it did. But Jesus might be willing to save you from your sin on the front end. So you don't have to live 20 years in sin. You know Jesus saves you from sin on the front end too as well as on the back end? You don't have to live a life of sin in order for Jesus to save you from your sin. He can save you on the front end. And C.S. Lewis has this story of how he got converted. And it was almost, he almost didn't even realize it happened until much later. And he's like, wait, I'm different. So let me conclude by sharing this story with you and, and for all of us. Here's what Lewis says. On an evening in September of 1931, Lewis was discussing Christianity with Hugo Dyson, one of his friends, and a man you may know by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. In retrospect, we can say that God was putting things in place for the conversion of C.S. Lewis that would follow the next day. But unlike Augustine, C.S. Lewis's conversion was very unemotional and without any kind of struggle. All the struggle had kind of happened in the previous years as he wrestled with various things. But here is how he tells the story of his saving bus ride on the way to the zoo. He writes, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny, sunny morning. When we set out on the ride, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and when we reached the zoo, I did. And yet, I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. Emotional is perhaps the last word we can apply to some of the most important events in our lives. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he's now awake. And C.S. Lewis was powerfully born again and didn't even know it. <laughs> I mean, this is the way the Lord works. The wind blows where it will. So is everyone born of the Spirit. It can happen in a garden in the 300s or on a bus ride to the zoo in London in 1931. And it did in both places. But whether you're driven almost to madness like, like Augustine, and that leads to the moment of your new birth, or you experience it quietly on a bus ride to the zoo. The reality is that you experienced a miraculous, powerful intervening of God in your life. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That was Lewis's testimony. That was Augustine's testimony. That was Peter's testimony. That's your testimony. And for those of you who are outside of Christ this morning, it can be your testimony this morning. You can just say, once I was not part of God's people, and now I am part of God's people because I place my faith in Jesus Christ. And God, by his grace, enabled me to see the good news as just that good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the good news 
that was preached to us, that was preached to us again this morning, the good news of Christ's death, of Christ's resurrection. Thank you that it's that good news that your Holy Spirit is pleased to take and use in our lives to bring us to spiritual life. And we pray that for our friends and family and children and grandchildren here this morning, that you would use your word, that the good news would sound good to them, that it, that it would be what it is, and that, that you would cause them to, be, to wake up from their sleep and to recognize for the first time maybe, or maybe for the second or third time, that I really do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he really is my hope. And he really is the only way I'll be saved. And I trust in him completely. May that happen even this morning. May you bring new birth this morning from a sermon on the new birth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.